Welcome to 1951 Down Place, the home of Hammer Films discussion. Each month, our hosts, Casey, Derek and Scott, take a look at the film catalogue of the legendary Hammer Films production, one picture at a time. Covering everything from the famous Hammer gothic horror films to their science fiction films, their thrillers, their film noirs and comedies, this podcast will offer critical opinion, production notes and historical facts about the films that make Hammer great. Make yourself comfortable, have a cup of tea, and welcome to 1951 Down Place. Ha! I suppose it was only a matter of time until someone found me. Welcome to my home! I have lived here in the dank, reeking sewers all my life. Forced to hide from society to conceal the hideous, twisted mass of flesh that is my face. But now... I can hide no longer. Behold, the Phantom of the Opera! Um, you look fine? I... What? Hmm, that doesn't seem like the right Phantom of the Opera. Let's try, uh... Hmm, maybe over here... Let's see if this one works. Nighttime sharpens, heightens each sensation. Darkness stirs and wakes imagination. Silently the senses abandon their defenses. Guess that wasn't it either. That's not the right phantom of the opera. Let's see uh, what else is out there. Let's see what we can find. Uh, um, oh, hey, I like that one. Yeah, that's the phantom that I know and love. That's right. I was not myself last night Couldn't set things right with the power Back in 1962, Hammer Studios released their own take on the Phantom of the Opera. The film starred Herbert Long, Heather Sears, Edward D'Souza, Michael Goh, Thorley Walters, and many others. It was based upon the interest generated by the Phantom of the Opera sequence in the Long Cheney Senior biopic, Man of a Thousand Faces, and with the success of Universal's 1943 remake. So Universal was interested in revisiting the Phantom of the Opera story once again. This time around, their plans for a remake fell through. But after Hammer's success with Dracula, Universal decided to let Hammer take on Phantom of the Opera themselves. And the project was eventually announced in 1959. So join Derek Scott and myself as we sit down to take on this 1962 entry into film history with Hammer's Phantom of the Opera. Like a child who was always poor Reaching out for more I could feel the hunger growing 
This is Victor Von Psychotron, host of Weirdo Rama, and you are listening to 1951 Down Place, the place for Hammer Film knowledge on the web. Come, if you dare, within these walls. On stage is color, beauty, and light. But in the shadows lurks a monstrous evil. Young woman, you must come with me. Terror haunts these dusty corridors. Murder waits its call in the dressing rooms. And on cue, death makes his entrance. to love and happiness for this beautiful young girl is tangled in a web of terror the phantom of the opera the hideous echo of a night of agony and horror a night that must be avenged even from beyond the grave. films did Dracula, they did Frankenstein, they did a mummy film, they are tapping into a lot of the classic universal monsters. So you do a werewolf film, we talked about that here on 1951 Down Place earlier this year, not too long ago. Well, there's one quote-unquote monster in the universal catalog that they hadn't tapped into yet, and that would be The Phantom of the Opera from 1962. That's the film that we're going to be talking about here on this episode of 1951 Down Place. I'm Derek, and Casey and Scott are on the line, too. How's it going, gentlemen? You got me all disappointed. I thought we were going to get a creature from the Black Lagoon Hammer film. <laughs> oh, that would be awesome. Well, I don't know. Maybe. No, it would be awesome. <laughs> After seeing this, I'm not so sure. Uh-oh. 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 Here we go. <laughs> Here we go. We got to remind everybody this is your birthday month, so happy birthday to you and this is your pick. Yeah, happy birthday, Derek. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, this was my birthday pick this month and it came about because I actually had Scott and his wife Tracy on Monster Kid Radio a little bit ago and we were talking about the very first film, The Phantom of the Opera. They got me into a Phantom of the Opera mood and I Decided at that point that this was the movie I wanted to talk about here this month on the Hammer podcast that we do. 
it's not that this is like a particular favorite of mine. Okay. I had mm-hmm. seen it once before, but you know, I am fascinated by the Phantom of the Opera phenomenon. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> See, this is how you know, listeners, that we've all been podcasting together for a while because I can set something like that up knowing that Scott's going to follow up with that. Just knowing that that's what's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> so it was fun for me to revisit this. It is available on Blu-ray now, and I did watch the Blu-ray and most of the making of special feature that came with it. I'm glad I watched it. No, it's not nearly as good or effective as the Lon Chaney version. But, you know, it's another telling of the Phantom story. And what I found most fascinating about this whole thing, we sometimes forget that we live in the age of VHS, DVD, streaming, Blu-ray, media that might have been produced 20 years ago, we can get our hands on immediately and watch. 1962, if we're to believe all the making of material that I read or watched, general audiences didn't really know what the Phantom of the Opera was. It was all but forgotten. Elon Janey did a version of it, and Universal did another version of it in the 40s. But, you know, really for 20 years, there wasn't a lot of Phantom of the Opera material out there. So... It's not like the audience knew what they were missing or going to get (laughs) with this film. I found that interesting. These days, you say Phantom, of course, you're going to think of Lon Chaney or, for better or worse, the Broadway musical. So, Anyway, I thought it was an interesting approach. I always think of Kiss meets the Phantom of the Park, personally. And that says so much (laughs) about you. I will destroy you. All of you. You kids. We've got to get out of here. I don't believe it! Yes, you can believe it. And now on NBC Saturday Night at the Movies, Kiss meets the Phantom. I was a big fan of, uh, it was in the 70s, I believe it was called, uh, Phantom of the Paradise. Hey, baby, this is Will Fan Jack here, and I want to tell you about Phantom of the Paradise. It's a movie, man, and it's out of sight. It's about a cat who sells his soul for rock and roll. It's a horror story. It's a love story. It's a comedy, all rolled into one phantasmagorical flake. So take it from the Wolfman. Get down with the Phantom of the Paradise. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. <laughs> That was my favorite version of the Phantom of the Opera story. I've never seen that. I love it. It's very 70s. It's very trippy. <laughs> That's uh, Brian De Palma, isn't it? I believe it is. I've not seen it either. It is. It stars Paul Williams. <laughs> it's pretty great. It's something special. <laughs> it's got that kind of helmet-like mask. Yeah. Yeah. They look kind of bird-looking. It's a good time. For whatever reason, whenever I think about that movie, I feel like it's set in a mall. And I know it's not. Yeah, I but can it, see why you'd think so. I don't know why. Like, like I said, I've never seen it, but it feels like it should be set in a mall somewhere. <laughs> but why is there a phantom of music running around the mall? I don't know. <laughs> I had a crush on Tiffany. Crush the on phantom Tiffany. of music land. <laughs> phantom of music. <laughs> Dramatic pause. <laughs> <laughs> I was looking at Phantom of the Paradise. I don't know that much about it. No, I don't know either. What I found most interesting about the making of or what went into making this movie was that a completely out of the blue actor had expressed some interest in being in a hammer film. Somebody that I would have never ever 
associated with Hammer. And how I wish this person would have been in it. Holy cow. Cary Grant shows up at the Hammer offices one day and says, I'd like to do a Hammer movie. Yeah. What? I would have loved to have seen that. I'm a big Cary Grant fan. I, and rightly so. I yeah. mean, the man's, <laughs> I mean, oh. The, and this the, is a point in his career where he had kind of sort of semi-retired and then Hitchcock brought him back and he started doing film again. And he's in the UK doing something and just pops in and says, hey, guys, I like those Hammer films. And from what <laughs> I read, he wanted to be the Phantom. So I've read two different stories on that, that almost every book that I have here and even the making of documentary on the Blu-ray says that that's what he wanted to do. I did read somewhere else, though, that there's no way that would have happened, that Hammer would have not done that because it's Cary freaking Grant. He would have been perfect for the Harry Hunter role. Exactly. Either way, the Hammer's like, Cary Grant, well, let's get to writing. Let's make something happen. Now, that was the only time that Cary Grant ever set foot in the office and they never heard from him again. His agent said no. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but Hammer starts working on the screenplay. They get Anthony Hines to write the thing using his pen name, John Elder. Anthony Hines is one of the high muckety mucks at Hammer. He's been with Hammer through the uh, the gothic birth of Hammer films. He's been there from the beginning of what people know Hammer for. And because he works in-house and he's you know, one of the producer types, he doesn't have to charge a lot of money for the screenplay. So, you know, there's there's some budgetary things going on here, too. But, yeah, he bangs out this screenplay. And that's really why a lot of this movie feels quite unlike the Frankenstein or Dracula movies, even though it's set in that period or in that world. I don't know. I feel like they knew better. There's no way anybody should have thought Cary Grant would turn up in a Hammer film, but they went ahead and wrote the script anyway. And Anthony Hines has gone on records as saying, yeah, he kind of knew it wasn't going to happen. But, you know, let's write the script anyway. Well, I think the reason this seems so much different than their Dracula and Frankenstein films is because they don't follow the universal formula for this film no. as closely as they do in Frankenstein and Dracula. Right. There's a marked difference in the story in this version than there is in the classic Universal version. The atmosphere and like the trappings of the era and stuff are quite a bit different too. So it was very more. It's hard to say because it sounds funny talking about this felt more upscale than say something like Dracula because Dracula being king and all that stuff, and in his you know royalty roots and all that stuff. But this had everything felt like it was very posh and very high-end, so it actually felt different to me in its presentation with the tuxedos and the gaslights and all that stuff. True. When you compare it with, with Dracula and Frankenstein, I will definitely agree with you. It did seem more upper crust, for lack of a yeah. better term. Yeah. Not quite royal, but a very upper crust, very snooty. Like Cary Grant movie. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been awesome. We would have gotten to this film a lot sooner than a little over two years into our run. If Cary Grant had been in it, <laughs> it would have gotten a lot of more, a lot more attention. It would have done a lot better theatrically uh, in the box office in the UK. It, I don't want to say it was a bomb, but it flatlined. It did not do well when it got released in the US. It did significantly better, but in the UK at the time, uh, it just didn't do very well. It was released as part of a double feature with another Hammer film. I forget which one right now. Not that it matters. It really didn't do. Very well with the critics for the box office. And a lot of people blame the censors, the ratings, well, what passed for the ratings board back then in the UK. 
when the producers were putting this movie together, they were told, okay, X certificate. You know, we're going to roll this out like a, a horror picture like we've done everything else. They get into the production of the movie. They're putting the movie together. Hey, you know what? we got to release this with an A certificate. Whoops. So the whole thing gets gutted. And when they release it in the UK originally, you don't even see the Phantom's face when they take the mask off. Because they're so worried about getting that A certificate, even though they intentionally put all this stuff in there to give it the X, like the stuff with the rat catcher, you know, that sort of thing. So, you know, by the time it's released, it's just muddled. It's not what it's supposed to be. Terrence Fisher kind of came at this thing in a slightly different angle, which, you know, because this movie didn't do too well, he ended up not working for Hammer for a couple of years after that. It's an odd one. I think it's got some moments, but it's an odd one. Yeah. Well, haven't we talked about Terrence Fisher in the past and how he's brought sort of a fairy tale feeling uh-huh. to some of the hammer films we've watched. That was definitely missing yeah. in this film. This didn't feel like a Terrence Fisher film to me to its, to its detriment. Terrence Fisher always wanted to do a love story and he worked some of those elements into uh, the curse of the werewolf and he worked some of those elements into this as well. And far be it from anybody to tell an artist what he can and cannot do but i don't know if fisher was really meant to do a love story at least not a hammer yeah so you know some of those elements kind of miss here and and you're not the only person to say that about the fairy tale elements scott um you know it's mentioned in a number of resource and reference books that this feels more like a children's fable than a fairy tale for adults and i don't know if i'd go that far but it definitely seems to be missing something so cary grant wasn't the Phantom, you know who else was at one point potentially going to be in this movie? A Hammer mainstay who was known for singing on set and in the makeup room, who just released a Christmas album. Christopher freaking Lee. Nice. What, what role was he going to be? The Phantom. Christopher Lee approached, at least that's what I'm reading. Christopher Lee approached Hammer like years before this came out and said, hey, you know, I'd love to do this. Let's do it. You guys know I can sing, right? You know, I can do my thing. I'm (laughs) sure that's exactly how that conversation went too, by the way. I have a transcript. Um, (laughs) I want to see him as Ambrose Darcy, actually. Oh, God, that would be amazing. Either way, though, I mean, he approached them, but Hammer didn't make it happen. And by the time Hammer got it rolling, Christopher Lee's living in Switzerland now, doing every potential project that comes across his desk because he's trying to build up his resume and his career as something other than just a Hammer guy. So that's why he was in the second Captain America TV movie. In Captain America 2, the U.S. government calls on Steve Rogers to help uncover a sinister plot against the United States by one of the world's deadliest criminals. Miguel, the revolutionary? In his quest for world domination, this man plans on holding the United States hostage. There. In two days, we'll have enough of Wilson's aging compound to affect that entire city. He's demanding one billion dollars immediately. Or he'll spread a chemical through a major American city, a chemical that will cause rapid aging. This is a job for Captain America. Reb Brown, Christopher Lee, Connie Selica, and Len Berman star in this high-flying action-adventure tale as America's greatest hero battles against overwhelming odds in Captain America 2, Death Too Soon. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) 
Sure. <laughs> I'm sure that's why. <laughs> <laughs> Look it up. He was. <laughs> I, I believe you, Scott. <laughs> that's the first time I've heard Derek left speechless. <laughs> Uh, hey, listen, I recorded with Scott about the 1959 Santa Claus yesterday. Listen to, an ep- <laughs> listen to that episode of Monster Kid <laughs> Radio. He'll be speechless most of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking Peter, or Peter, <laughs> Christopher Lee would have been amazing in this. Either it's the Phantom or, like you said, it's the Darcy role. Wow, that would have been great. Yeah. Oh, well, another missed opportunity. However, we do have, let's see if I can pronounce his name right, Herbert Charles Angelo. Kuchisevich, Z. Schluten Pakuro. I butchered the hell out of that. Gesundheit. Also, also known as Herbert Lom, <laughs> <laughs> playing the Phantom in this, and he was brought in towards the end. Uh, not as late as the mask itself. The mask was kind of a last minute <laughs> addition to the cast or, or prop list. And it shows. Yeah. Well, I like it. I like it for what it is. But yeah. Anyway, he's brought in to play the Phantom, and Scott, go ahead. What? James Bond connection, go for it. <laughs> it's a little early for that, isn't it? They can't talk about some of the other people in it. Is it? I guess. I guess I'm you're lost. You're gonna make us wait. Come on. <laughs> I guess I'm lost at what reference you're trying to make already. Is it Herbert Lom in a James Bond film? <laughs> I don't Uh-oh. remember. I could be wrong. He was in the Pink Panther movies. I don't remember him in a James Bond. Film. It's the same thing, isn't it? No. <laughs> <laughs> he was in the Dead Zone. He was on Hawaii Five O. I guess I need to watch more. Uh... <laughs> the Man James from Bond. Uncle, who sort of got spies. Hey, I know who's in the James Bond movie. It wasn't Herbert Lom. It was the other dude. <laughs> yeah, there was a couple other dudes. I mean, <laughs> Herbert Lom did work with Disney. Maybe that's the... There you go. Why don't you do that? <laughs> he was on the uh, Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Color in A Horse Without a Head from 1963. It, it is a horse, isn't it? Oh, yes, monsieur. We've never seen his head, but we're sure he's a horse. Yes, A Horse Without a Head races headlong into mystery and misadventure. Unwittingly outwitting the mixed-up masterminding of a 100 million franc train robbery. The horse without a head! Have you gone crazy or something? You come in on the most, well, the most beautiful piece of work since the stealing of the Mona Lisa with three of the finest professionals in the country. We make a fortune for all of us. And where is it now? You beat the record. I'm sure you beat it. Oh, oh. Hey. Our horse has been stolen, monsieur. Your horse? The one without a head. Robbing a bunch of kids. Men in our position. It's undignified. I appreciate your professional pride, gentlemen. But I'm not leaving this to a bungling fool like Rublo. Now get going. No doubt about it, the horse without a head gives everyone a real run for his money. 
in a frolicking fun for all that just won't quit. The robbers don't know what the kids know, but when they discover what the kids don't know, then everybody knows. And that's when the fun begins. Join the fun with Jean-Pierre Aumont, Herbert Lum, Leo McKern, Pamela Franklin, and Vincent Witter in their madcap muddle over the horse without a head. From Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Color. Yeah, horse without a head, James Bond. I can see where you get confused. <laughs> yeah, it's real easy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> What's our James Bond connection, Scott? <laughs> well, I've got two, actually. You got two? I know of one. Well, there's. Uh, no, Ed- you don't. Well, the first one we've got is uh, Edward de Souza. Edward de Souza. Yeah, uh, he w- plays uh, Harry Hunter here in the Phantom of the Opera, but he also played Sheik Hussein in 1977's *The Spy Who Loved Me*. Hussein was a Bedouin in the Egyptian desert and a friend of James Bond from their days back at Cambridge University. He helps Bond uh, locate some of the men that are selling the submarine tracking system charts and uh, actually offers Bond a place to stay the night and the company of one of his wives. That's the big one. Uh, The other one is Marine Maitland, who played Xavier in Phantom. He also plays uh, the gun and bullet manufacturer Lazar, who makes the bullets for Scaramanga's Golden Gun in 1974's The Man with the Golden Gun. Who the hell is Xavier in this movie? I don't remember. (laughs) (laughs) Marnie Maitland. Yep. uh, Marnie? Marnie? M-A-R-N-E. Yes. Marnie? Uh, we also have, uh, for Casey, I found a Doctor Who connection. Yay. The Rat Catcher, played by Patrick Trout. Was the second Doctor in Doctor Who. Wow. <laughs> and I have another uh, Disney connection. Michael Goff, who played um, Lord Darcy. He was the voice of the Dodo Bird in 2010's Alice in Wonderland, the Tim Burton version. Nice. Goff was also Alfred in the Tim Burton Batman films, and actually where I know him best is he was Dr. Paul Flamond in Top Secret. (laughs) Sorry, so wait, they're all in James Bond movies, right? (laughs) (laughs) But I can actually, you know... Michael Goff was uh, in Top Secret with Peter Cushing, mm-hmm. and Marn Maitland was in The Man with the Golden Gun with 
Christopher Lee. Well, Patrick Troughton also appeared in at least one of the other Dracula films uh, for Hammer. Michael Goff, of course, was in the first Dracula film for Hammer. Herbert Lom ended up doing a little bit of Hammer work. Edward de Sosa was also in Kiss the Vampire. We have yet to mention Christine, played by Heather Sears, uh, when she's not singing. When she is singing, she's doubled by somebody else. She only did this one Hammer film. Uh, she did uh, more theater work than film work eventually. Uh, don't really have much more on her. It's not like you can go to a theater database, like the Internet Movie Database, and learn more about her. But you know, she's no longer with us as well. She died pretty early, you know, the age of 58. But yeah, this was the only Hammer film she did. She did a lot of uh, a lot of television series, a lot of TV well. over in the B- over in the BBC, over in the UK. I think we pretty much hit most of the cast outside of the dwarf, <laughs> who was introduced into the movie. If you're to believe that Cary Grant was going to play the Phantom, the dwarf was created so that Cary Grant wouldn't have to do any of the actual murdering, mm-hmm. so that at least he could still be kind of sort of a good dude. That makes sense because I was wondering where he came from. Yeah. Something, somebody who was very out of place in this film. To me, anyway. No, he seems to be the odd man out. He doesn't seem to fit. And I don't, I can't think of any other Phantom version that has like the little dwarf assistant running around doing all the murders for the Phantom or helping the Phantom out. A little henchman? Yeah. He's played by Ian Wilson, who also appeared in The Wicker Man, but I don't really know much more about his career. So, <laughs> And you never get to hear his voice, so it's not like you'd be able to hear it and place him as being in that James Bond movie or something. So, <laughs> you know, I'm going to assume everybody was in a James Bond movie at some point in the UK. Isn't that how that works? If not that, Harry Potter. Oh, there you go. There we go. How- or Doctor Who. It's one of the three. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Find our Harry Potter connection, Scott. Go. <laughs> Seeing as I know very little about Harry Potter, <laughs> I'll be back in about an hour. <laughs> they were all British, just like Harry Potter. Oh, Thorley Walters is in this as well. I liked him, and he's done quite a bit of Hammer. He was in Frankenstein Created Woman, The Vampire Circus, which we'll be getting to here in a couple of months. So yeah. I like him a lot. I just like his name, Thorley. Thorley. Well, clearly this isn't going to be a movie that we are all like, wow, this is amazing, but... You know, I still think it had some moments, and and we'll talk some more about that, I'm sure, as Scott kind of goes through the plot. Will you let me know when those moments come up? Sure. (laughs) (laughs) As you can probably tell everybody, I wasn't too impressed with this film. (laughs) Well, how much of that? Well, you know what? Let's, I'll I'll, I'll sit on that. And sit on it, Derek. (laughs) And to answer your question, probably not as much as you think. And we'll get to that question later. <laughs> I don't know what the hell you're thinking about. <laughs> I was going to ask you, well, never mind. I'll wait. See, <laughs> this is this is a tease. This is to make sure listeners wait till the end of the episode before they turn it off. <laughs> Next month on 1951 Down Place. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're introduced to basically the opera house at the beginning. We've got the St. Joan Opera at the opera house. Uh, it's a new opera by up-and-coming London proposer, Composer Lord <laughs> Composer <laughs> I'm sorry I don't know why that's funny Never mind, I'm sorry <laughs> It's a new opera by up-and-coming London composer Lord Ambrose Darcy Who is uh, Michael Goff, as we've said 
But everywhere that producer Harry Hunter, Edward DeSalva, goes by in the theater opening night, we see evidence that some sort of vandal is at work. All of the uh, coming attraction posters and everything outside have been all ripped to shreds. We see a drum head that's been all cut up. Part of the music has been stolen. The uh, director of the mu- uh, the conductor of the music, uh, the orchestra can't find some of the music. There's all sorts of little problems happening for this opening night. More than just opening night uh, jitters, I think. Then we're inter- we see um, Maria, who is the lead soprano for the opera. She's getting ready in her in her dressing room. She's being delivered flowers. She's spraying her throat down with some lozenges type stuff. A little spray bottle to, you know. Loosen the pipes, I guess. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but then she sees a one-eyed man in black appear in her dressing room, warning her not to sing, and she goes into hysterics. What is it now? It's Maria. She said she's seen something. Maria? Maria. He was here in the room. It was terrible. Now, Maria. Now, Maria, nothing. I saw him, I tell you. Standing, standing just over here. Just here. Black. All over black. And his eye staring at me. His eye? Eye. One eye in the middle of his forehead. And his face, Harry. It was horrible. So she's being calmed down by uh, Harry Hunter and uh, also her assistant. Harry's trying to figure out what's going on. We also get uh, Latimer, who is sort of the... I'm not sure exactly what role is in here because I first I thought he was Darcy's lackey for better term. This is a uh, Thorley Walters character, Latimer. Yeah. You don't know what his allegiances are. He does feel like Darcy's, like you said, uh, heel or, or thug, but it turns out he's basically the stage manager or the, or the house manager. He just doesn't have the guts to go up against Ambrose Darcy, but the Lord Darcy is asking him why you know, is it a sellout? And he says, yes, it's a sellout, but why is one of the boxes over there? empty and there's a box like right across from where uh, Darcy is sitting I thought you said the house was sold out so it is my lord then why is that box empty over there there have been complaints 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 of what of noises my lord what voices people do not like to sit there are you trying to tell me it's haunting? That's what they say, my lord. This is too much. I shall speak to your directors in the morning. Perfectly good box going to waste. Uh, all this is going on, the commotion of the opening night and everything, and nobody kind of sees uh, this little hunchback character climbing through the rafters above the performance. And he's also sulking around backstage. Yeah, that little hunchback gets away with quite a lot out in the open, and people just don't notice it. The show starts, the opera starts, and it's 
the opera is basically the retelling of Joan of Arc's story. And we have the lead soprano. She goes out to start singing. And in the middle of her number, one of the sets behind starts to rip open. And a man who's a stagehand who's been hung comes swinging out over the stage. As far as it, so for me, this movie, the first part of it was really good, and then it got really slow in the middle. This is one of the highlights of the first act for me. Was that scene and that setup because it was actually pretty, I thought, pretty effective and pretty shocking, especially for the time. Oh, I was riding with this. I thought it was great the beginning uh, in, in this first opening uh, scare. I mean, you see all these things going wrong with the opening night of the opera. And so, of course, I'm thinking, you know, the Phantom is behind all of this. Right. And then we actually get a death right away. I was struggling to figure out what the little hunchback had to do with it because obviously he wasn't the phantom because he's not wearing a mask or anything. Right. So I was having a hard time figuring out what he had to do with everything. Well, after this is going on, Maria, the soprano, decides that she doesn't just not want to sing in this or this opera, Darcy's opera anymore. She also doesn't want to sing anywhere in the country. She's that scared. The police have ruled that this stagehand's death was a suicide, but uh, Maria's not buying that. She thinks the play is haunted or the opera is haunted and she doesn't want to have anything to do with it but of course the show must go on so they start uh, auditioning sopranos to take maria's place and that's where we're introduced to christine charles who is uh, heather sears was that that wasn't her last name in the original was it i don't remember what christine's last name was in the original maybe it is charles i don't know it just eh, whatever (laughs) (laughs) Now, now i gotta look it up no, not the Phantom Menace. <laughs> Wrong goddamn Phantom. <laughs> it just didn't sound right. It didn't feel right to me. That was the 1925 version. No, it's D-A-A-E, however you pronounce that. Oh, that's right, yeah. Die. Die. D-A. But here she's um, Christine Charles. Nice alliteration. Not really. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, she's inexperienced. Uh, She's, I think, like a member of the chorus or something in the past. She's never been the lead singer in any opera. Darcy thinks that she needs a little of his special tutoring to be able to sing lead in the opera. He's ready to give the role to her. And he then tells um, Latimer to give her a note. He writes up a little note to give to her. And uh, Latimer goes back and we see uh, Christine with a bunch of the other singers. They're all really excited for her because she's got the role. Miss Charles. Yes? Lord Ambrose Darcy. Thank you. Well, how much can you afford? 
A few shillings, that's all I have. Well, I can let you have five. Oh, no. Oh. I can spare half a card. And, of course, all the other girls decide to chip in to help her get a dress to be able to wear to this dinner because they're all so excited for her that she's going to be able to go out with the guy that wrote the opera that they're putting on, even though this is the only opera he's ever written. It's not like he's a well-known composer of other shows, but they were all thrilled for her, which I, that seemed kind of odd to me. I was expecting kind of like a jealousy thing, like, oh, man, you got the role instead of yep. me? Nope. Yeah. Well, they all leave her alone in the dressing room because they have to go out to practice. And so she's sitting there looking in the mirror, and she hears a voice coming from somewhere in the room. She can't see anybody. She's looking around. Young woman. Young woman, listen to me. Who is that? Who are you? Be quiet and listen. You sang well, but you will sing better. I shall teach you. When you sing, it will be only for me. Please, who are you? Only for me. Do you understand? I understand what you say, but... You are dining with Ambrose Darcy tonight. Be warned. He is a vile and vicious man. Who are you? Where are you hiding? Please tell me. So... She ends up going to dinner to this fancy restaurant. Uh, the girls did a good job with her dress, I thought. She, she looked really nice. <laughs> Darcy's already there, and he's already starting to hit the champagne, and he's obviously wanting to get her a few bottles of champagne in her as well <laughs> before he decides to explain how this training is going to be. You know, he wants to start that night. And she's like, oh, the opera house will be closed. Of course, I'm a busy man, but I think I might be able to spare you a few minutes now. Just a few, man. Oh, if only you could, I'd be so grateful. I'd expect you to be grateful. You're a delicious little thing. I'm going to enjoy teaching you. I have an idea. Let's have the first lesson now, right away. The theater will be closed. My apartment will. <laughs> so she's nervous, obviously. She doesn't really want to go back to Darcy's apartment. I also think there was quite a bit of an age difference between the two characters. They didn't really capitalize on that, but I think that also worked into why she was a little skeevy about the whole thing. Luckily for her, as they're leaving the restaurant... Harry shows up for dinner at the same place. Good evening, Ambrose. Good evening, Harry. Miss Charles. Mr. Hunter. Lord Ambrose has very kindly offered to coach me in my singing. Has he? Tonight. Tonight? Yes, and I wondered if you could possibly spare the time. That is, if you'd care to. But of course. Nothing I like better than watching Ambrose teaching you how to sing. So she takes it on herself to walk over to Harry to say, why don't you come with us to this practice? Because Darcy is going to uh, help me get better for the role, and it'd be great if you were there. Harry looks over at uh, Darcy 
putting his jacket on and Darcy just shoots him a death stare. And Harry immediately says, yes, I'd be more than happy to go. <laughs> so they get ready to leave and uh, Darcy, or yeah, Darcy finally says, well, you can find your own way home. We're not going to do this tonight. <laughs> Michael Goff is a creeper. Yeah, he is. Yes. It's not like the, uh, that's not the only time they had him doing that in this movie either. He did, no. was trying to talk her into going home again later too. And others. Yeah. I mean, that's not the only one, too. The one with the big flouncy dress? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which I had the impression that she probably did go, but that's just me. <laughs> she, she would have needed to because she couldn't say. Anyway. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. that's true, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, they decide, uh, you know, after Darcy leaves, or Christine and Hunter decide that they're going to stay and eat dinner after all because Christine's probably had not eaten anything the whole time. So they have dinner. And uh, during the course of dinner, Christine explains that uh, the voice that she heard earlier, Hunter's already familiar with the strange voices and everything else that's been going on at the opera house. So he decides that they're going to stop by there on, on the way to taking her home so she can show him the voice was coming from so he can try to determine uh, what was going on. They immediately go in and I guess it's the cleaning staff that are going through the garbage right just inside the door there. And they don't know who he is at all. I couldn't tell if they were the cleaning staff or just, a you know, four old homeless women. <laughs> I couldn't tell. Good evening. My name is Hunter. I'm the producer of the opera. Yeah, and I'm the Queen of England. <laughs> Now be off with you and do your wooing elsewhere. But I assure you. Go on. Go on. Get out of here. And I just like the you know, the one. He's just looking for some dark corner to court in her. <laughs> Courtin, yeah. <laughs> but he, he eventually tells them that he lost some diamond cufflinks or something at a certain place. And so they all go running out back out into the theater to look for it. They go back to the dressing room go through what had happened earlier. Hunter can't find where the, the problem came from, but as he's looking around, the gas light goes out, and we again hear the, the strange voice. The gas. Harry. Don't be afraid. Mr. Hunter. Mr. Hunter, I do not want you meddling with something that does not concern you. Do you understand? No, I do not. Who are you? Get away from here. Get away. You do not know what may happen to you. I'm not easily frightened. Then you should be. My threat is not an idle one. There are forces of evil at large in the opera tonight. Leave the girl and go while you may. They leave there. That's where we get to meet the rat catcher. Which I didn't know was a, a big profession at the time. But I guess... His job is to go in and he catches the rats and then offers <laughs> some of the rats to Harry and Christine so they could make some 
meat pie. Mm. No, no, no. We're vegetarians. <laughs> Nada, none of that. I'll find him for you in a moment, sir. You never believe your eyes. Please stop him. Please don't bother on our account. No. Well, I could let you have them both for tums, sir. They make a lovely pie, you know. Um, we're vegetarians. Pity. Really? <laughs> Was that even a thing well, in like, 1900? I, I don't know. I mean, I'm a vegetarian <laughs> now, but... Uh, oh, who doesn't love some se- good old rat pie every once in a while? <laughs> I, I thought it was a clever, you know, on thinking on his feet real quick to not offend the rat catcher. But the rat catcher then, he walks back into the theater, and um, we then also have seen the hunchback is kind of leering around there as well. And he attacks the rat catcher. The rats escape the rat catcher's um, bag that he's got him in, and they go running back by um, Harry and Christine, which then Harry goes running off to figure out what's going on, puts Christine up on a table because all the rats are running around. This is where we get our first good look at the Phantom because he comes down the stairs behind Christine, obviously to abduct her and take her back to where his um but said where his organ is <laughs> <laughs> but she sees him and faints just screams and so harry comes running back in there and the phantom leaves without being able to take christine i thought the rat catcher's death was kind of a nice little hammer moment oh definitely that what that scene reminded me more of the fact that I was watching a Hammer film than anything else in this entire film. It's just so, I don't know, the way the knife went in was kind of squishy. It was nice. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And when it, when it, what I thought was good's not the right word, but when I thought it was effective is when it was pulled back, it looked like it was covered in blood. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the next day, both Harry and Christine have been fired by Darcy because of what they did to him last night or what they didn't do to him last night, depending on who you, which one he's talking wow, about. Wow, yeah. <laughs> well, actually, she gets fired first. She's told not to even come in that day. Um, uh, Latimer brings a note to the apartment that she's living in. Harry gets fired later on once finds out what's going on because Darcy is now auditioning new people to be the soprano in the play, including the woman who was well-endowed that couldn't sing (laughs) that we mentioned earlier. So Harry gets fired speaking up against Darcy. So he leaves and goes to find Christine. We meet the, the woman that runs this apartment complex and um, Harry tells Christine at this point that, Hey, I've been fired too. So let's go to lunch. You've got 10 minutes to change. So she goes off to change, and while they're gone, he's kind of looking around the room because the house mom has gone off to get some sherry. And he's looking around. There's a piano. There's a music box. He starts the music playing. And then he notices this scrim changing wall. I don't know what you actually call it. But it's decorated with different pictures and stuff. And as he looks down, he sees a piece of music that's been incorporated into the piece and obviously recognizes the music when he starts looking at it. At this time, the house mom walks back in, but then, uh, unfortunately, he died in, a, in an accident and left all of his music. I've got a lot of the music left here. It happens to be in the closet, so she gets it out, and he starts going through it, finds a couple pieces, sets down the piano, and is playing it. 
and it's similar to the music that we've heard already for the Joan of Arc opera. Pretty subtle altogether, I gotta say. Not really. <laughs> <laughs> so he's asking what happened to the professor. Supposedly, he died at a printing uh, company. There was a fire there, and uh, he burned up in this fire, is what he's told. So about this time, Christine comes back. She's ready for lunch. Only took her five minutes to change clothes. But instead of going to eat, the first Good place girl, they go he is says to when the, she shows up, by the yes. way, which was just, come on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, it only took five minutes. Good girl. Let's go. Good girl. <laughs> but instead of taking her lunch, they go to the printing company that had the fire earlier. And they end up talking to one of the older employees who was working there when the fire happened. And he tells them that somebody had broke in to the printing company and had started a fire, but it also spilled some of the nitric acid they used to etch the plates, probably thrown it on the fire, and it came back and set the man on fire as well. And But he didn't die here. He actually uh, ran off into the night, and you know, he was seen by a police officer. So, and... Still not going to lunch, they leave there and they head off to the police station where they, the police officer, you know, at the time, I guess, was a beat cop, but now he's a lieutenant or investigator or something because he's there at the police station. They talked to him and they said, yes, I, I did see the, the guy run out of there. He was screaming bloody murder and ran down and fell in the river. They walked out and found out where he fell into the river. And Harry is like, did you guys f ever find a body? And he says, no, we, we never did find the body because the current is so strong here. And Harry is like, well, didn't you dredge or drain, um, drag the river or anything? And he's like, no, we never did. <laughs> Don't be silly. <laughs> what do you expect me to do, my job? <laughs> Harry notices there's a grate in the side of the building that goes down to the river. He can't get a good look at it, but he's, he notices it right away. So he's trying to to figure out what's what's all going on here. You know, who this guy was that that died in the fire and everything and he recognizes this music is the music for the opera. So he knows at this point that Darcy didn't write any of this music. Somehow because you know, he complains earlier in the film to Latimer that Darcy can't write music I and mean, he the music is is good but i guess the lyrics he's complaining he couldn't write a good song or anything he just doesn't understand where the, this came from but yes he now knows that lord ambrose darcy didn't write saint joan and it actually came from this professor who was professor petrie one thing at this point of the film that really kind of bothered me anymore is like okay now i know who the phantom is it's pretty obvious and we've still got 35 minutes of the movie. Yeah, definitely. They, <laughs> I mean, they pretty much spelled it all out for you. There's, you yeah. can't even guess otherwise. <laughs> so it's takes, it's <laughs> taken all of the suspension out of this movie yeah. or the suspense, all of it, all of it, all of it. So now what we're left yeah. with is with his opera practice <laughs> for another 35 minutes. <laughs> I mean, maybe it's a, maybe it's a personal thing. Maybe I'm just not that into opera, but 
That's what it felt like. Harry goes back, tells um, Christine everything that he had found out. Well, the hunchback stole her. The hunchback stole her away um, and brought her down and dragged her hair through that muckety-muck water, which I thought was just gross because you know what's in that water. Yeah. It's 1900 London. You know what's in that water. Well, well, Tracy told me, you know, watching that, and she's like, how did she – because she gets knocked out. Right. She's and and the hunchback is carrying her carrying her over his shoulder, and her hair and her feet are in the water. And she's like, "Man, he must have really belted her if that is not waking her up." But he takes her down to the phantom's lair, which is off this. Uh, you know, there's a, a pool of water in the center that comes from the river uh, that you have to cross through, and he drops her there. The Phantom has this huge organ up on this little precipice hill type thing. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) He starts playing, which that wakes her up. And she walks up to where he's there and he turns with the, you know, he's got the mask on and he's like, I'm going to teach you to be the, the singer, the best singer that you can be. And he starts being really rough on her. It's really a hard training that he starts with her to the point where he slaps her at one point. She um, collapses from exhaustion after a lot of practice. And he yells at the hunchback to get water. And he traces for the first thing. She's like, he's not going to get the water out of the river. <laughs> and that's exactly what he does. Gets a cup, dunks it in the water there and brings it up. And she's like, he's not going to make her drink it. And I said, no, he's just going to throw it in her face to wake her up. And that's what happened. But still, yeah, again, you know, what's in this water. Mind the floaters. (laughs) 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 Well, while this is going on, Harry finally confronts Darcy of, with the information that he knows that this uh, Professor Petrie actually wrote the opera after Latimer finally stands up to Darcy as well. Was it Latimer or Latimer? I thought it was Latimer. Latimer. Sorry. Latimer stands up to him and they, they drink some more. I can't remember what is it sherry or whiskey brandy, or something. I thought. Brandy. You're right. It was brandy to celebrate that. Well, then we get a flashback as Hunter is confronting Darcy to find out the the real story of what happened. I liked when they went through this flashback scene. I don't know if you guys noticed it. Did you notice it was all Batman angle? It was all tilted. Yeah. yeah. Um, almost every shot involving pre-Phantom Herbert Lom was shot this way. And it's commented on in the making of featurette on the Blu-ray that it was all done in Dutch angles. I don't know if it was because he wanted to show that Herbert Lom was off kilter to begin with, or if it was because it was a, a flashback and they wanted to give it a different visual look. But I thought it was cool. It was nice. It served its purpose, whatever it was. Unfortunately, I've watched a lot of the old Batman yeah. TV show, and that's all I see yeah. now. Yeah. But we, we find out that the professor had taken his work to Darcy this whole pile, I mean, there was more than just the opera. There was uh, symphonies and a bunch of other uh, works of music. Darcy offers him 50 pounds for the entire lot. And the professor thinks that he's just selling the, the publishing rights so he can get out there. So he finally agrees to this paltry amount for all this work. 
Later, he's walking by that printing press company that we talked about earlier, and he sees through the window the opera being printed. Same name, but it has uh, Darcy's name on it as the composer, not his. So he goes back to confront Darcy at, uh, I guess, Darcy's estate at this point. And he's like, I thought you were just publishing. She says, yes, I was publishing my music. I paid you for it. It's my music. And that just sets the professor off. Um, Later that night, he breaks into the printing press place, decides he's going to destroy everything that's been printed. So he opens up, I guess, the furnace and there's a raging f- uh, fire going on in the furnace, which I thought was kind of strange. And then there's nobody there to tend to this huge fire. But even though it's behind the metal uh, gate, it's still burning full in the middle of the night. So he starts tossing in all of the, the printed works. He notices the the plates are still in the printing press. He pulls them out, tries to smash them, tries to, to stomp on them. Nothing seems to work. So he grabs some of the acid to start pouring it, that the etching acid on it. At the same time, he had left the, the gates open on the fire and some of the, the papers on fire fall out of it, catch some uh, more paper and straw on the ground on fire, which then starts burning in there. He instinctively throws the acid on it, think, you know, and it comes back and burns his face. He goes running out of the printing shop. He goes past the police officer that we saw. The police officer starts chasing him. We see him fall into the river, and we also see his, what looks like lifeless body, then float down to this, uh, off this little gate that um, Hunter had seen, or Harry had seen earlier. Like I said, mind the floaters. <laughs> he he floats back into what we've seen already as his lair, but well before that it's his lair, and the hunchback is living down there, and he rescues uh, the professor, pulls him out of the out of the water, and uh, nurses him back to health. The dwarf bugs me a yeah. lot, and even here where we have an opportunity to maybe learn a little bit more about him, I don't know where he came from. He's just here. He saved my life, and I now take care of him. <laughs> take care of him or yell at him and berate him and make him do shit. Isn't that the same thing? Definitely not give him a shower. <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> well, he takes so many baths in that water. <laughs> <laughs> well, Hunter is now, you know, he's he's got this story. He's looking for Christine. He decides that to go back, and he's, he's retracing the steps of of the professor, so he's back there at the river, and he hears singing coming from that grate down there, and he recognizes the voice right away as Christine's. So he figures out how to get down there with the use of a, an old rowboat. He goes down there. The hunchback hears the splashing coming, so he gets this little device to help him breathe underwater and goes out to meet Hunter and attack him with the knife that we saw earlier. They have a scuffle in the water. Hunter easily defeats the hunchback and carries him back into the lair where everybody finally meets up. The professor tells Hunter the whole story of, of what's been going on and that he just he wants to hear his play be produced by the right people and that Christine's voice will fill 
opera houses all over the world with her fans if he can just have some time to to teach her to sing right. He's she's got the raw talent, but he's going to help her sing. And they end up agreeing that what for two weeks that she'll work with the Phantom to to learn how to sing right. We go back to now after the two weeks, it's now time to have the show again with Christine in the lead. The Phantom is there as well. He actually confronts Darcy at one point. Uh, Darcy actually rips the mask off of the Phantom. Who are you? Answer me, who are you? Good evening, Lord Ambrose. Take off that ridiculous mask when you speak to me. Do you hear me? Take it off! So we get to see what the Phantom looks like without the mask on, which I thought was fairly, it looked fairly cool. It looked like somebody that had burned, been burned by yeah, acid. Yeah, burned by acid and then a little bit of fire. Yeah. Yeah, I liked that a lot. Yeah. Actually, I thought that was a high point of this movie was his makeup. And I can understand why audiences might have felt robbed in the UK for not being able to see that. True. We get to see way too much of the opera itself. <laughs> yeah. To the point where at the very end, you know, the character of Joan of Arc has been found as a heretic and she sings this song all by, she's the only one up on stage singing. And I looked at my wife and I said, drop the chandelier on her already. (laughs) (laughs) And Tracy's like, well, we haven't really, they showed the chandelier at the beginning of the film, but maybe it's not in this. And I was like, no, it's on the poster. (laughs) This chandelier will be a part of the end of this film. (laughs) The Phantom has been shown in that box earlier, the one that was haunted. He's actually in that box now watching it. During this scene, we get a close-up of his eye, and there's a, a tear that forms in his eye because it's so beautiful. The Hunchback is up in the rafters swinging around to see the show. He gets spotted, so he's trying to escape. He actually jumps on top of the chandelier at one point, and the rope starts to break. Both Harry and the Phantom see this happening, the Phantom jumps out of the box, jumps down on stage. Of course, everybody screams when they sees, see this. Eek. He runs, yeah. He runs over and pushes Christine out of the way just as the chandelier comes down and kills the Phantom, knocking his mask off. And, and uh, credits scene. roll. And scene. So. <laughs> <laughs> so that was uh, Phantom of the Opera. All right. Talk to everybody next month. All right, bye-bye. Good pick, Derek. Good pick. Yeah, I, I try. I'm trying to bring it away. <laughs> Happy birthday, Derek. <laughs> now, as we talked before, the beginning of this movie was really solid, I think. So everything, when they're showing, like, the design of the Phantom's lair underneath the theater, it's like, wow, how did they get all this under a theater? Uh, why is all this existence up? It was really kind of fantastical there i thought that was pretty great watching him do his thing and the very opening of it is good but then all of a sudden we hit start to get get into the second act and this movie like just drops slows to a crawl for me and it becomes a chore i loved the beginning the first maybe 15 minutes where you were setting up uh, the opera house like you said and we also get you know the phantom basically trying to do his best to stop the performance when we're introduced to all of the characters and just the whole, um, the way the, the theater looks, the underground looks, everything 
and, and up until the death, I, I'm I'm really going with this movie. Where I think the movie falls apart is when Christine is introduced. Yeah. First, I didn't buy a relationship, a romantic relationship between Harry and Christine at all. Harry seemed to be more interested in saving the play, in saving the production, than courting Christine. Well, even at the very beginning, he seems a little bit like a player because he's talking to the original singer. Yeah. You know, the way he kind of comes in and there's this kind of, oh, hey, how you doing kind of vibe going on. No, I think not, there's not more, how you doing? As, yeah. Not nearly as bad as Darcy, though. I never got that with her either. He was still trying to make sure that this play went off. He right. was just trying to calm her down. That, that's what I'm saying. I mean, it seems all very surface. Yes. Yeah. And they tried to set up a love triangle between him, Darcy, and Christine. And I didn't buy that either. I mean, Christine wasn't going to have anything to do with Darcy. And Darcy, when he was rebuffed once, he didn't try to go back after Christine at all. He immediately fires her and starts finding new meat. So I didn't buy the whole love story in this film at all. And that's probably my biggest complaint of this film. Yeah, the love story was completely dropped in this. I totally agree with you. I appreciate that Terrence Fisher wanted to do a love story at some point, that he wanted to do a love film, but a love film, that he wanted to produce some sort of or direct some sort of romantic film, but I just don't know if he had the chops. Yeah. that And that's obviously why the second act of this movie just bottoms out and it becomes such a chore because you had such a great setup before. And now all of a sudden you can't connect to any of the female characters. You cannot feel in any romance or anything like that in this love story. And it's just like, Oh, get on with it. Now, early on, Derek, uh, you were going to ask me a question about when I said that I didn't, wasn't too happy with this film. And I have a feeling the question you were going to ask me is that the reason I didn't like this movie is kind of comparing it too much to the uh, universal version. Because I know that before the we started recording, I did make the, the one comment of one of the reasons that I didn't like this film is the change in the character of the Phantom. Yes, that is one of the reasons I was disappointed in this film. Not the big reason. The love story is the big reason. Sure. But I didn't like the change in the Phantom to a tragic hero instead of just a deranged maniac that he is in the Universal version. I also was disappointed in the reveal of the Phantom's face, that it was done by Darcy and not Christine. I mean, I can understand why Darcy does it, because he can finally see he's the, the man that's been messing with him this whole movie is the guy that he screwed over earlier. But you don't get that visceral scare from Christine when, he, when she finally sees the Phantom for who he is. But you don't, you don't want that in this movie because the Phantom actually helps her and they become friends, which makes no sense to me in the Phantom of the Opera story. Have, you, have either of you read the original novel? No. No. Yeah. So I don't – it's weird because we're coming at this movie – it's an adaptation of a story that had been ad adapted from something else. So our point of reference, at least for Scott and I, uh, is the Lon Chaney film. For Casey, it's Phantom of the Paradise. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, our point of reference for, for Phantom, the Phantom story, is vastly different from the people, than the people who created the film, who people who saw the film. When I first read this, I didn't buy it because, I mean, these days there's – Dozens, if not hundreds, of Phantom adaptations. He oh, shows yeah. up on Scooby-Doo for crying out loud. But if I'm reading this right, this was only the third time this movie had been, or excuse me, the 
the third time it was done as a feature. And if that's the case, then I can understand taking more liberties with the story. I mean, there were liberties taken with the story the first time around with the Lon Chaney version of the film, but I can understand why audiences may have been okay with, or even the filmmakers may have been okay with changing up the story quite a bit. I can understand what you're saying, comparing it to the original story, but Hammer already has a track record of taking yeah. their basis off Universal's movies. That's why I think the comparison to the Universal film is a valid one. I'm, I'm going to say not really, though, because Dracula's, the Draculas are vastly different. The Frankensteins are vastly different. But they're still evil. That's true, yeah. They're still the bad guy. They're yeah. still the ultimate evil in the film. They didn't make Twilight. <laughs> now, you said, though, when I had you on Monster Kid Radio that you didn't think the Phantom was really a monster, right? I don't think he's a monster in the supernatural sense of a monster. I think he's more gotcha. of a maniac. Gotcha. A crazy person. There is a little bit of that in this film where he grabs his head and starts kind of muttering and that sort of thing. There's a, there's a scene where he bangs his head into a wall a couple of times. Well, that's right after he's gotten the uh, acid in the face, yeah. too. About that scene, Herbert Lom refused to do it because it was a real wall. He's like, no, this is too hard. So they had to spend half a day building a rubber wall for him to bang his head into. <laughs> but yeah, I, I didn't buy the, the mania in this Phantom. Again, it's all very surface. There's a lot about this movie that's just all very on the surface. It doesn't get very deep. I did like some of the performances, though. I liked Edward D'Souza. Oh, uh, very much so. I, you know, I didn't buy the romance, but I did like him. I liked him as the investigator type. Yeah. Yeah. And I liked uh, Michael Goff. I loved Michael Goff. To me, he's the villain of the piece. Yes. Yeah, he's definitely the villain. I know he's one note. He's nothing but bad through and through. And we really are kind of robbed of his ultimate fate. Because it really does happen to him at the end. He pulls the mask off, screams, and that's it. We don't ever see him again, right? So we never get to see him get what's coming to him. But I still loved him. To me, he's the villain of the piece. And he's just... I mean, Michael Goff's a great actor. We've seen him as, obviously, Alfred. But we've also seen him as kind of a good guy, Arthur and Dracula. And then we get to see him be this complete bastard in this and I, I loved it i thought he was great and i've seen him play the villain in other movies like horrors of the black museum which is fantastic what at the black museum did you say horrors of the oh, black okay. museum. <laughs> easily for me personally he is my favorite character in this film yeah he was he, every time he was on screen he was fun to watch reverse of that is i didn't like uh, Christine. I, I thought Heather Sears was just, there was nothing there. There was no substance to her character at all. I, I can't put it any other way. She just seemed like a, a, a blank slate the whole time. I didn't feel anything from her. I didn't even buy the fact that she was falling in love with Hunter at all. I agree. I think there wasn't enough there for me to believe that she was going to be the star of the opera, of the play, or the musical, or whatever. And that's kind of carried it through the story, because the Phantom has to train her how to sing better to the point of exhaustion, and then you splash some sewer water in her face and wake her up and have her do it again. <laughs> uh, you know, but I still don't feel like, yeah, she didn't have the leading lady or the star quality she needed to carry 
that important of a role. Uh, her singing was not done by her. It was dubbed, doubled by uh, Patricia Clark. And I just, I didn't feel a connection to that voice either. Well, I'll, I'll let you guys into a little bit of a secret. I, I don't like opera. For those of people out there that like opera, more power to you. But opera singing, especially women's opera singing, is my fingernails on a chalkboard. Really? Yes. And there's a lot of it in this film <laughs> that just, you know, it was like something going up and down my spine the whole time. It just, it was just, I didn't like it. But that's, <laughs> that's a personal quirk for me, and, I, and I'll own that. If you like opera, hey, more power to you. There's some, a lot of opera singing in this film. There's too much. You, you commented on it. There's way too much. And I, I know that's a big part of the story. And, I mean, it's a freaking musical on Broadway for crying out loud, which I've seen and it's good. But not on Broadway. But, uh, you know, I just – there's way too much of it in this. Way too much. You mentioned the chandelier. I thought the stunt was okay of uh, the chandelier. What I find interesting is that the chandelier wasn't a huge thing until the second film, uh, until the uh, Universal uh, color film with Claude Rains as a phantom. So you do get the, the chandelier moment in this. You get the big face reveal in this, sort of. So at least you get the two big phantom moments. I just felt like they weren't played up as well as they could have been. Oh, I definitely agree, especially the, the face reveal. And Lom has said that he didn't watch the Cheney or Reigns version before doing this film, but I don't know if I believe that because there are some times in the film where he is acting almost identically to Cheney in terms of his body movements, the way he holds his finger up in the air, the way he does these big movements pounding on his chest, you know, you must feel it in here, the way he was playing the organ. It's very melodramatic and over-exaggerated, like a silent film would be. I felt like they were trying. It just wasn't enough. And the next film was The Old Dark House, so you know what Hammer was thinking. <laughs> I like The Old Dark House better than this film. What? Wow. I but, do. Well, it's because of uh, Tom the, Poston. Yeah. So we talked about there being a ton of music. I uh, I don't mind the score. I like the score. Okay. It was a, a change of pace. It was refreshing. It's not your typical James Bernard, whatever. You know, they bring in somebody else by the name of Edwin Astley, who'd done a lot of television. He did the opening theme song for the TV show Danger Man. <laughs> as well as the 1950s, The Adventures of Robin Hood. So, you know, he's a, a skilled, accomplished composer, and I liked the scoring of this film. The opera stuff I could have done without, or not nearly as much, but I like him. And he is the father-in-law of Pete Townsend, for people who care. <laughs> That's important, right? From The Who, for those yeah. of you that don't recognize the name. Who? Yes. No, who? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> The mask was created last minute, like we talked about. Uh, the makeup on the face was cool. I liked the makeup on the face a lot. The mask was supposed to be created by somebody offset. They contracted somebody out to do it, and it just wasn't working. I would like to see what the original mask looked like. Uh, I don't know if I've seen a picture of it, but last minute they got Roy Ashton to put a mask together using whatever he can get his hands on. And to me, that worked because this guy running around the sewers isn't going to have the – 
highest quality of ingredients to make a mask, and I kind of like it. I like yeah, it. He, he's not going to be able to come up with a uh, metal bird-shaped mask like, you know, Phantom of the Paradise. <laughs> And there was even parts though when he lost this map later on. I really like. I really enjoyed the map mask. I think I enjoyed the mask more so than like the famous mask that we know with like half the face. Oh, really? And whatnot from the musical and all that. But just because it seemed a lot more stark, it seemed a lot more monster-like um, since it was so featureless and everything. And plus, there was parts when this mask came off and everything. You could tell that it was some kind of like a, almost like a cast material, is what it looked like. Yeah. So it looked like plaster and stuff like that. So like you said, he was. it looked like it was handcrafted from materials on hand. It was supposed to be uh, – see, the film was supposed to be shot in an actual opera house, but they couldn't work the deal. So they ended up shooting in a theater instead that still is there. I think it might have benefited from being shot in an actual opera house, something bigger, something more lush. But considering they didn't have a huge cast, they might have had a hard time filling that set. So, <laughs> you know, it's, it was shot in a theater. It was shot in – the Wimbledon Theater, which is over 100 years old now and still, at least as of 2010, still there. I don't know. I mean, I'm glad I watched it. I'm glad I have it on Blu-ray. The behind-the-scenes stuff's fascinating. But next year, though, I'll pick a better movie for my birthday, okay? <laughs> the Vengeance of She, motherfucker. A yacht in the Mediterranean. A day for quiet pleasures. But for this girl, disaster calls. What happened? The girl went over to sight. George went in after her. Who is she? Where does she come from? The answers lie 2,000 years back. 2,000 years of vengeance that reach into our time to tell the shattering story of a goddess queen and a lost world. Barova, a new star. Olinka Barova, a new face, a new beauty as she. Remember the name, you'll not forget the woman. She has returned, and two different worlds in 2,000 years cannot save the world from her vengeance. John Richardson as Calicrates, the immortal one. Aisha has been reborn. She is mine. <laughs> Where is she? Philip! Carol! Edward Judd is the man she loves, from the world she knows, who follows her to Kuma to reap 2,000 years of vengeance. returned in our time to make two worlds meet in vengeance. Uh, yeah, the, the Wimbledon Theater is still running. It's still open. In fact, no. in, in fact, <laughs> oh, I, never mind. <laughs> what? I misread something, so. 
What were you going to say? I I just glanced and I saw that on Sunday, December 14th, which is uh, right before or the day we're recording this, actually, even though it's going to come out at the end of the month, they're showing Santa Claus and the Magical Journey, Magical Christmas Journey, and I read it as Santa Claus Conquers the Martians for some odd reason. <laughs> no, it is still there. Right on. It's a really cool looking from the outside. There's a big, huge picture of it. Oh, wait a minute. It does, the sign says the new Wimbledon Theater, so maybe it's not the same. Well, it got redone. The front of it got rebuilt, so might still be the same place. Anything else to say about the film? I personally probably will not watch it again. Ever? <laughs> ever? Probably not ever. Ever? Ever. Yeah, it's not high on my list either. I'm glad I watched it. But yeah. Yeah, the first act and the and the makeup on the Phantom I thought were pretty great. Other than that, it was just eh. So, what I was referring to when I was trying to find something on YouTube, like with, was it The Evil of Frankenstein that we did here on the show? Did we do The Evil of Frankenstein here? One of the Frankenstein films, there was some extra footage shot for the American television release. And there is some footage like that for this film as well. It's not on the Blu-ray. I wish I could find it on YouTube. I'd like to see it. But they shot some additional footage involving a couple of uh, police officers investigating some murders. Oh, by the way, we did do The Evil of Frankenstein. That was our April 2014 episode. So that would be the one that I was referring to then. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I wish that I could see that footage because I'd like to see the, you know, it's an odd thing. It's probably, it's not part of the original film. It wasn't made by the same people. It was a different group. But, you know, it's one of those little odd things that I'd like to see how they incorporated this extra footage into this film to give this other subplot with these, you know, two policemen trying to figure out who's killing people at the opera house. And if they managed to merge it into the end of the film as well somehow. So I take it that uh, this isn't going to uh, broach either of your top fives? No. No, we're good. Yeah, me neither. It would not be in my top five, not my top ten. I think it rates uh, fairly high on my uh, better than she list. <laughs> yes, but not better than the old Dark House. <laughs> my God, no. I mean, no. You're so wrong. Yeah, I think I like this better than uh, Old Dark House. Yeah. <laughs> I guess we'll have to agree to disagree then. No, we don't have to agree to disagree. You can just say you're wrong. <laughs> well, if listeners enjoyed the show, enjoyed the movie, how can they let us know? Well, they could let us know in multiple ways. They can send us email feedback at podcast at 1951downplace.com. They can either send us a, um email or they could record their own MP3 file and send it to that address. They can give us a call at area code 765-203-1951. Now, that is a three-minute voicemail line from Google Voice. It will do a hard cutoff at three minutes and not give you any warning. So this is your warning, I guess, here. <laughs> they can uh, also visit our homepage at www.1951downplace.com or find our Facebook group uh, by searching for 1951 Downplace in Facebook. Thanks, Scott. No problem. <laughs> this one really did kind of leave us all a little flat, huh? Yeah, it really did. I feel like the energy got sucked out of the room. It's because I got older. Yep. I just feel old. Yeah, we're all feeling your age. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I was feeling that young. <laughs> Better than feeling Scott's age. <laughs> I beat you to it. <laughs> I know, I know. Next month. 
Next month. Changing it up. Yes, we're going back to a film noir, which I'm actually kind of looking forward to. We're going to watch The Flanagan Boy, or as it was released on this side of the pond, Bad Blonde. We're going to be revisiting uh, the lead from Four-Sided Triangle on this one. Ooh. I think that's her, right? It is now. <laughs> I better double check. <laughs> and she was in a James Bond movie, wasn't she? <laughs> Either that or Harry Potter or Doctor Who. We've already established that. Established that. <laughs> uh, Barbara Payton, who was in Four-Sided Triangle. Yes. She's the one who uh, ended up succumbing to severe alcoholism towards the end of her life. Uh, so this is the other Hammer film she did. So I'm looking forward to getting back to a film noir. That should be interesting. A little change of pace. And then in February, another birthday month. Casey, what do we have for February? Vampire Circus. Oh, that'll be fun. Yep. <laughs> that one's a high-ranking one. Have you seen that, Scott? No, I have not. Oh, you'll like the uh, the Tiger Lady, I think. Oh, yeah. Is it a Tiger Lady? Yeah, it's I Tiger believe Lady. so. I wasn't watching the stripes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, looking through the films that we have upcoming, not until November do we reach a film that I've seen. Oh, this Dep- well, depending on what our listener pick month ends up being. Vengeance of She, ladies and gentlemen. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, Vampire Circus is number four on my uh, top five list. So that's like a really trippy, different, unique uh, hammer flick. So I'm excited to get into it with you guys. It's uh, early 1970s, isn't it? I think so. Yeah. yeah. I picked up the Blu-ray at a convention, but I've not watched it yet. I've sat on it and waited until we were going to cover it. Well, there you go. Then after that, we have the Pirates of Blood River and then uh, Die, Die, My Darling May, we have 1969's Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed, followed by The Curse of the Mummy's Tomb from 1964 is our June yes. film. <laughs> July will be our listener pick month once again. So Vengeance of She. Keep an eye out on Facebook for We might the, as well just call it now. Vengeance of She. I am going to campaign against it because I want it to be available for your birthday pick. <laughs> the, no, I don't like... No. Then... <laughs> Then in August, we have 1972's Straight On Till Morning. Then after that, in September, we have A Challenge for Robin Hood from 1967. Next October, Dracula Has Risen from the Grave from 1968. And then next November, back from my birthday month, we're going to another Phantom movie. We're going back all the way to 1935 for Phantom Ship. And I know Derek is uh, looking forward to that one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and why are you looking forward to it? Bela Lugosi, baby. His only uh, turn at a Hammer film. That's our upcoming schedule since Derek hasn't told me what he's going to do for his birthday next year. What's the hurry, man? So listeners, please do not vote for Vengeance of She for July <laughs> so Derek has it available to pick next December. You know, we didn't mention it. Michael Ripper's in Phantom of the Opera. Yes, he's a, a cab driver or carriage driver. I almost didn't recognize him. He played it masterfully. Yes. He was the highlight of the film for me. <laughs> All right, then. Yeah, <laughs> big, big sigh. Yeah, this one really... Hmm. Well, uh, from all of us here at 1951 Down Place, ladies and gentlemen, I hope everybody has a happy new year and all of that. And I hope you had a wonderful Christmas as well. And I suppose we can hope that Derek had a good birthday. It's all right. <laughs> I don't remember much of it, and I did go to bed early, but, you know. 
That's what happens when you're old. <laughs> uh, thanks for uh, indulging me for this film. Next year, I'll try to pick something a little bit more exciting. No, you won't. I just have this to say. I'm glad you guys liked my birthday pick. <laughs> I know you guys are going to like my birthday pick, so I feel, I'm feeling good. No, I don't <laughs> think Scott's going to like it. <laughs> Scott doesn't like anything good. <laughs> hey, I like Santa Claus. Scott doesn't like anything good. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thanks uh, for recording with me again. It's, even though we weren't high on the movie, it was a good time recording. Alrighty. Bye bye, everybody. Joni loves Chachi. Here you go. Peter Cushing. <laughs> Yeah.
dungeon upon this stage. 